This March, I'll be launching a special run of episodes called Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. Theory in the Flesh is made possible because of funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust, and they have created a survey to better understand listener appetite for health and research-related podcast content. I would be so grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill out the survey. Alongside showing support for Busy Being Black, you'll be able to enter yourself into a draw for tickets to this year's British Podcast Awards. Head to podcastviews.com to fill out the anonymous and data-protected survey. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. In October 2017, I became the first black editor of Gay Times, the UK's longest-running gay magazine. It was an immense achievement, the result of two years of reorganizing my life to focus on amplifying queer voices. That success was short-lived. Just a few weeks later, a story was published about me on BuzzFeed. The story revealed, to my surprise and to that of those rooting for me, a series of deeply offensive tweets. A media storm ensued. I was swiftly and summarily fired, and a debate raged online and off about how someone like me could have said things so horrible. And so, after apologizing to those I offended and to the people rooting for me, I retreated. In the months that followed, the queer black community really rallied around me. They were firm, fair, and supportive. They shared with me their own experiences with failure and mistakes and how they got back up. And they told me over and over and over, you are not the sum of your worst moments. Importantly, they reflected back to me the person I knew I was becoming. The young man committed to self-improvement, to being a force for good in the world, and to serving the queer community. I have been reluctant to discuss what happened, as I think I paid a fair price for my mistakes. But I also think it would be disingenuous of me to create this platform where I center and encourage vulnerability and honesty, and then not speak about my own mistakes. Busy Being Black was born out of that trauma, and the healing that began shortly after it. Now, almost two years later, I'm in conversation with my friend Campbell X. For regular listeners, you'll know that Campbell and I first sat down for Busy in October 2018. Today, though, we flip the script and Campbell interviews me. What follows is our unedited conversation from London Podcast Festival 2019, in which Campbell and I explore nationhood, identity, diaspora, masculinity, cancel culture, failing up, and healing, love, and joy. It is a beautiful, expansive, and generative conversation. Campbell, thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. And a special thank you to Dave Pickering for the equipment and the support. There is a lot of laughter, and so it gets a little loud at times, and there's some digital interference at the beginning for a few minutes. Hang in there. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Campbell X at London Podcast Festival. Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Campbell X, and I am a filmmaker. And um, I made the queer urban rom-com called Stud Life, which is an award-winning film. And recently made a film called uh, Visible, which is a documentary on reclaiming our queer, trans, intersex people of color from history to um, recalibrate the idea that being LGBT is white and um, anybody else is really other, and um, we, we've never existed in the past, and we've only existed since, like, two years ago. 
when when we when when we are allowed to be visible. And um, I want to introduce Josh Rivers, who is um, the founder and the host of the podcast Busy Being Black. Mm -hmm. Hello. Would you like to say a little <laughs> bit about yourself? Sure. Josh. I'm Josh Rivers. I am the creator and host of Busy Being Black, which is a podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Now, Campbell won't promote themselves as well as they deserve. Campbell is largely considered one of the most preeminent, one of the most important contemporary queer filmmakers. So this is, it's such an honor to share this space with you. Again, because we had a very interesting and expansive conversation for the show. Yeah, we did. Um, and it was a privilege to be to be on your show and to be able to rant. Anyway. <laughs> um, it was all about the whiteness of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, the white, G-A-Y-Z. Oh, yeah, um, the white gays, G-A-Y-S and G-A-Z. Yeah. Um, so a little bit about you, because um, many people hearing your accent will just think another yank coming over <laughs> <laughs> to take up space in these <laughs> septed aisles. So um, can you give us just a little context of um, who you are in terms of nationhood, citizenship, identity? Mm. Uh, nationhood is interesting. Yeah. Um, I remember when I, when I moved back, so I was born here, my mom's British, my dad's African-American, and um, born and raised here for, for most of my life, but went back to the US for middle school and high school. And I remember when I, it was when Barack Obama got elected, and the, the, the question all the time was, why are you here? Why aren't you in the U.S.? Like, all this amazing stuff is happening. There's a black president kind of suggesting that the, the problems are over. <laughs> the racial problems are over. Um, now, everyone is like, well, the U.K. is a dump. The U.S. is a dump. And you don't get those questions anymore. <laughs> yeah, it was gone silent. Have you considered going back to Africa? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'll welcome you. I have. <laughs> we all have. I don't know where I'd go. <laughs> Ghana, is, Ghana is welcoming people back from the diaspora. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. it's interesting. You know, my sister and I had our DNA test done via one of those... Um, DNA. Data collection. One of those data collection companies. And this was before we knew that it, they were harvesting our DNA for <laughs> the rise of the right wing. But, um, <laughs> but our DNA is good. It's been, uh, <laughs> yeah, they don't want years. the black ones. That's the point. They're like, no, you go over there. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it, and it turns out that the majority of our, you know, because African-Americans don't often know directly um, where we were robbed from. So it was very interesting to find out that um, the majority of our black DNA or African DNA appears to be from Cameroon right. and Ghana. Right. I thought I might feel something as well, speaking of nationhood and, and yeah. tribes and whatnot. I thought I might feel something knowing that. I don't know, I thought something would... Did you feel empty or did you feel... Well, what like was most... So basically these, these DNA tests are now so... Advanced, I mm -hmm. suppose, for lack of a better word. Because they've collected so much data. That's right. Especially <laughs> the cheaper ones. <laughs> that they can now tell, um, based on your DNA, where they think your ancestors landed in the U.S., which right. I thought that, for me, was most shocking. Yeah. That 
um, we were robbed from Cameroon mm -hmm. and deposited in North Carolina, mm -hmm. which aligns to the family tree that my grandfather did that took us mm -hmm. quite far back to Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that was interesting. I think the interesting thing about that is um, because we're visibly of African descent, um, there is the idea that our identity is fixed and homogenous mm. and what you've just said is that you're african-american and british and um my ancestry is from the caribbean the caribbean ancestry is fused with everything european african um, indigenous people which runs through my veins as well as um psychically and culturally caribbean culture is very fused it's indian it's middle eastern it's chinese it's um you know, um, Northern European, Southern European, Jewish, Christian, Hindu, Muslim. Mm. So, you know, psychologically we're a fusion, um, but it doesn't seem as if that's allowed in a, a British context. Whereas, you know, blacks very homogenous and homogenized in um, particular ways and um, even more so um, I, I don't know how you define racially, if it's like you know the Black. biracial mm. or you know mixed heritage you know if if you just explain that a bit because you know everybody uses different words mm. because of different politics and some people are like black yeah you know i'm black i'm black yeah yeah i used to identify as mixed race mm -hmm. um and I, I laugh now because it seems so obvious that i was identifying as mixed race before as a way of separating myself from blackness one, because I never felt like I had a title to blackness. So growing up in predominantly black communities, being light-skinned, there was a lot of pushback from black boys, particularly, who thought I was an uppity nigga. And so I always kind of really recoiled from blackness in that respect. And weirdly, in my kind of 12, 13-year-old head, I was like, well, if you think I'm an uppity nigga, I'm a be a uppity nigga. Mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of a, a almost retaliatory. Yeah. And because of my privilege and because my dad was in the military and because I was able to kind of be living ostensibly a bubble, mm -hmm. it was quite easy for me to ignore race altogether. And it wasn't until the summer of 2015 um, with the Baltimore riots that I really woke up. And I was like, because um, I think Obama was admonishing the rioting youth in Baltimore and saying, you know, you can't destroy your city, um, you know, because another, I think it was Freddie Gray, because another black man has died. And I was so enraged that, you know, the government's response, that Obama's response to these riots would be to admonish these youth who are clearly acting out their rage and their upset. And I remember calling my mom, who's a white woman, and I was like crying, and I was like, what do I do? What do I do? She was like, I have no idea. This is, this is a journey. Yeah. This is go a journey that dad. you have to go on. <laughs> yeah, go talk to your dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I thought I would raise that city to the ground if that's what it took for people to realize that black lives matter, right? Like mm -hmm. fires seem like a very small price for a city to pay for the death of another black man. Um, there's a filmmaker called Shakith who has this really moving and important body of work. Um, and his project, around the same time, um, he was asking black men, when did you become a black man? And all these black men have their backs to the camera, and it's all shot in black and white. And these black men are kind of recanting their stories about when they realized they were black. 
not when they realized they were men or et cetera. When did you become a black man? And I think there's a very specific time in our lives when the, and, and, and again, I acknowledge the privilege that I was growing up with, that I was able to shutter myself off from this conversation for, for what felt like a very long time. But there's a moment in all of our lives when, when those uh, uh, blinders drop and you realize, and I realized that I had a place in this movement, but also within blackness, that my blackness has been paid for, inherited, but also earned. I think that's true. Um, however, we know that blackness is contingent on certain things. Like and, what? Um, on heterosexuality, for instance. Sure. And, um, contingent to, upon heterosexuality kind of in the Western sense. In the Western sense, right. which, which we're in. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times when um, we talk about Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. it's usually black cisgendered heterosexual men's lives that matter, not black trans women. Despite the fact that it's black queer black people on the front lines of Black Lives absolutely. Matter. Absolutely. Right. And who started, that? it was started by um, uh, queer women. Yeah, Patrice Cullors, et cetera. Exactly. To... Um, to give voice to um, black trans women dying, actually to center that narrative, yet it's been largely co-opted again, as in lots of radical movements, lots of black radical movements by um, cisgendered men's mm -hmm. um, agendas, even though a lot of the work is done by um, cis straight women and mm -hmm. queer people. Mm. So I want to ask you, like, how how does your black masculinity, as a queer black man, fit into this paradigm? Because, you know, I don't know how you came. Like, what did you come out into? Did you come out into the white LGBT world, or did you come out into a black <laughs> LGBT mm -hmm. world? Because that determines. So much. Yeah, I think it's obvious that I kind of immersed myself in white LGBT. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about that because that yeah. this is quite significant mm. um, to a particular narrative sure. um, that most of us have because the white LGBT world is the dominant world That's of right. clubbing, of spaces, of culture, rhetoric, of yeah, all that. Exactly. Of how we act, how we interact with each other, with the world, what we think is funny, what we don't, what we think is not funny, what we think is stylish, what we think is beautiful. That's all that, you know, when I came out at 16, I came out like a unicorn. It's like, pew, and there was no going back in. Um, but at the same time, I had no references for, I, I thought that, to be gay was to be as white as possible. Right. Right. With that, it, to be white and cloney or to be white and twinky. I mean, let's get, let's get, let's get basic because I have never felt a like a twink, <laughs> which there's nothing wrong with being a twink. No, no. I've just never felt like okay, one. So, so I don't know, but I, I did, I, you know, because it's changed over the years. Totally. There so there was a way in which femininity was okay. And now it's absolutely a no go area. Well, so. it, I think there's, from my, you know, one of my cultural references, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. when I came out was the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Right. Carson Kressley, and I wrote about this. Cause Does I, that, do people remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he was so mean. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. And now looking back on it, I'm like, oh my God, Bitch. like how did he get away with that? Yeah. And he was, and I remember writing about this when I was in uni because I thought... 
that purple Gucci suits were how we were gay, right? Like it was so, it was such a limited way of looking at the world. (laughs) Well, I mean, now under Alessandro Michele, you might, but like, you know, at the time I thought it's this kind of very ostentatious, over the top, incredibly sardonic, very mean, mean. that's how we survive as gays. And I think if you look at any of our, if you look at, um, what was the show, the very famous one, Queer... Queer's Folk. Queer's Folk, Queer's thank folk, you. Yeah. That was also full of the sardonic and the witty and the catty and and drugs and cocktails. And I think every cultural reference that I have for gayness, and if we speak about gayness as distinct from queerness, mm-hmm. has been about this kind of like uh, city-led coke and cocktails kind of, you know, very kind of reductive life. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me so long to get to a place where I'm like, that... One, it's surface level, and if if that's part of the culture, fabulous. Mm-hmm. But that can't be like the be all and end all of our of our gay existence. Is that we go for brunch every Sunday? Like there, there if you has can to brunch be every Sunday. If you can afford brunch every Sunday, I sure can. <laughs> cannot. I mean, I sure cannot. Shall we talk about Tesco? Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that electrified me. So in 2015, I had this awakening in the barbershop. Mm-hmm. And I call my mom. She's like, pass. And so I'm kind of like on this journey of like... I like the barbershop thing because that is a space. Oh, because it was a safe space for me as well. Right, which is interesting that you consider the barbershop a safe space. Hugely. When a lot of um, LGBT people... Black, was it a black barbershop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, where else did you go? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I, I've, I'm not I, self-hating. I've, <laughs> 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 well, no, 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 I'm going to ask a few questions. Um, you know, I've, I've found the barbershop to be a place of safety and um, quite intellectual conversations. So the barbershop I, I went to mm-hmm. was full of, I don't know, they were like, X something, but they were working as barbers, so they were incredibly well read, and they'd mm. read every. They were Nigerians, so they'd read every single Chinua Achebe, and they were onto Chimamanda, <laughs> yeah. you know. And it was like, whoa, okay, yeah. I'm in this space, and, and we have to find those sex spaces, right? I think that yeah. barbershops kind of get this kind of blanket. Uh, they're such cult- they're cultural institutions, they right? Are. And they kind of get this kind of blanket homophobia mm-hmm. um, draped across them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think my own experience has been: you don't just settle on the first black barber you no. go to, right? No. You you're in the chair, you're listening, you're observing, you're like, nah, this great fade, but not coming back here. Yeah. And you keep I slit my throat. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, but also I have one of the things I've learned to lean into is that I can't mitigate my gayness. Yeah. I am gay, yeah. and I'm like so proud of that gayness. Yeah. And so when I walk into a barbershop in the height of summer in my hot pants, I need yeah. to know that you guys are okay with that, yeah. and that I'm gonna walk out of here looking shit hot. And alive. so once I find and alive, <laughs> and so once I once I found that barber, I'm kind of I'm like yeah. religiously attached to that barber because they are not as um, as as prominent or as regular as we'd like. In any case, so I'm I'm in the barber chair. Um, and so after that awakening, I start reading Malcolm X, of course, of right? Course. <laughs> so you could who, who was bisexual yeah. and a sex worker, and a which, sex worker. which has been completely, is it pinkwash or whitewashed? Or, I, I think it's whitewashed. Straightwashed. Straightwashed. Got to get the washing right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. um, and mm-hmm. I was yeah, really good. struggling with. Uh, one, his autobiography, if you haven't read it, is kind of like mind-bending, uh, terrifying, but also enlightening. Yeah. 
and I was really struggling with this particular intersection of blackness and queerness, right? Because mm-hmm. I felt like I'd come into my queerness early, like I said, 16, mm-hmm. unicorn, I'm gay, no mm-hmm. turning back. Mm-hmm. And I always felt more fluent in gayness, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. I always felt more makes, comfortable yeah, in, in my gayness. Sense. And so when I came into my blackness, I was like, but these two must intersect somewhere, mm-hmm. and I am that intersection, mm-hmm. and what do I do here? So I was having dinner with one of my mentors, and I was crying, because I was like, I don't know what to do, and I'm here. And he was like, have you heard of Bayard Rustin? And so yeah. this is early 2016. And I was like, no, I've not heard of Bayard Rustin. And he was like, Bayard Rustin is the queer black man behind Martin Luther King. Yeah. He is the man who organized the 1963 March on Washington Without for Jobs on Freedom. Mob- no mobile phones, nothing, no internet, no social media. Nothing. 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 And at the time was the largest march Ever, ever convened and so and I did not know so I kind of went home from that dinner and I started looking into Bard Rustin and I called my dad and I was like dad do you know who Bard Rustin and he was like no and I was like don't you think and I got so animated and so excited it was like I had been shot with electricity right and yeah. this and that electricity was a sense of of recognition yes that we had been here before and so then you know James Baldwin of course I encountered more of his work and started then actively looking for queer black men particularly throughout history who had made these incredible contributions um, to our culture, to what we know of ourselves, to, yeah. to black culture yeah. um, predominantly. And then you find that house music was started by a queer black man. You exactly. find Sylvester. You find all these other really amazing examples. And so my idea of what it meant to be queer mm-hmm. was 2016 was when I started identifying as queer versus gay. Um, uh, all is these that because I- of the brunches and the purple suit? Like what, like what caused... Well, I thought queer was more expansive. Okay. Right? It allowed me to... Because I'm, I'm less sure that I'm 100% gay. Right. And I, don't, I think that this kind of 100% gay, 100% straight is actually... It's, it's a weird colonial thing. It is a colonial Right? It doesn't make sense to me. And so I think that queer is more expansive. It's a bit more capacious, I think. And, yeah. and, and also, it's, it's a political statement. I'm a queer black man, and that feels good to say. Great queer black man, Josh. Um, I'm going to talk about, because we had this kind of exchange on Twitter about sex education. Oh, yes. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I it. thought it was amazing, but I'm very easily <laughs> impressed. Yes. <laughs> and I noticed in your long roll call, they were all men in your awakening. Yes. I, and I'm curious, as uh, because they're, they're, you know, their names that I know as well, mm-hmm. but I would also quote Audre Lorde, Octavia Butler, sure. Toni Morrison. Sure. And I wonder at this kind of segregation of the later. mind yeah. in terms of um, finding identity when we want to be expansive, but we keep it strictly to our our own gender. Like, yeah, I, I, I totally that, hear you. And, you know, I think, and I think, but just to say, it seems to be very gay men, queer men do it more than queer women or, mm. queer, you know, do, I you, think do you understand I, what I mean? Totally. And, and I think it I'm makes just curious sense to, to look, understand this. To look for someone of our immediate experience, perhaps, uh-huh. mm-hmm. when looking for an anchor point, mm-hmm. right? And so I was trying to find a way to connect to a queer black identity that I understood. Mm-hmm. And so began looking for other queer black men who could mm-hmm. help me tell that story within myself. Mm-hmm. But then when I discovered Audre Lorde, when she, rather, when she was put in front of me mm-hmm. as an example of, of someone to read. By, by a, a woman? or By a, Lady Phil. Okay. 
Yeah, and so when when a wonderful lady, the film. One incomparable our, our, our queen. Yeah, so when I started reading Audrey Lord, I was like, oh my god! And then when I started reading Toni Morrison, I was like, this is even better. And it kept going, and Octavia Butler, and it just kept going and going. And all these women started flooding in, and then I was like, well, who else haven't I been paying attention to? And so that's really been busy being black as well. It's like I have a singular experience that is unique to Josh Rivers, and I started here, and I'm trying to make my way somewhere. I'm not sure where. But I'm trying to pick up all these cultural references and, and inspirations along the way. I don't know how we. I think that. I think. I think that we look immediately to our right, as in someone whose experience is directly tied to ours, is probably an indictment on the kind of one-dimensional, kind of reductive way in which we present Black culture anyway, or queer black culture anyway. It is a kaleidoscope of experiences and gender identities and socioeconomic backgrounds and nation states and borders. There's an entire beautiful spectrum of experiences that help inform who I am as a queer black man now that I think it's, I feel like sometimes I've taken a roundabout way to find all of them, but on, in, the same, in the same vein, that's kind of the beauty of the journey. It is the beauty of the journey and um I, I would say, as a feminist, it's also the, the paradigm of, of patriarchy in which certain voices come forth first, mm -hmm. always, mm. to certain people. Because if you're mar even marginalized within that um, black paradigm as you know a woman, trans or otherwise, <clears throat> or a non-binary person, you will still know about James Baldwin sure. and, you know... Um, Bayard Rusting in a way before you even know about Audre Lorde. Sure. Just and because and of I, the the, fr the framing of, yeah. of knowledge. And I think there's a responsibility um, that we have. Those of us who, I mean, both kind of like in our private lives, but also those of us who are embarking on much more public projects to, uh, of healing, of awareness raising. Mm. I think there's a responsibility that we have to, to put forward more of the voices. And I think Busy Being Black for me is certainly, uh, it's, it's it's me demonstrating my learning. It's me saying, here's what I'm learning yeah. and passing that on to someone else because I didn't feel like I had people who were passing on their learning. To me, I felt like everything I've learned, I've had to learn the hard way until very recently when people were like, when I've asked for help and people have said, here is some help that you've asked for. Yeah, which is great. But just going back to, I want to ask you about um, your black masculinity and growing up what did you learn about that because in you know you spoke about living in a bubble mm -hmm. and I don't know you know what you might have learned from other black men around you or the messages you got from Stoicism, your mother yeah yeah you know <laughs> and it, it's quite interesting to explore that a bit before we go on sure. to um explore uh, kind of more deeper meanings about your psyche and, and, and where you might have inhabited around the messages you learned about gender, how to perform masculinity, which was the right way, which was the wrong way, which were, were ways that, you know, were transgressive. Were you doing the transgressive thing or were you, you know, quote unquote, straight acting? I hate that word. Yeah, I don't know, I th the, all those words um, are very generous for a young me. I think... Okay. What were you like? What was... <laughs> Uh, look, I worked at Abercrombie, 
And, and if anybody knows about that brand and so. their fascistic, <laughs> yeah. body shaming, um, and at one point, horrific value system. That's right. And I drank Seriously. that shit up. I was like, You're like right. I am I the am a body epitome. Yes. I am beautiful mm-hmm. and I've been chosen by Abercrombie and Fitch <laughs> to stand and, at and the, the front I of the store. I passed the brown paperback <laughs> test as well. Yeah. They don't put uh, me in the stock room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I did. I drank, I drank that Kool-Aid. Um, and I loved that Kool-Aid. And you were like, I thought ah, it was delicious. Um, I also wore two polo shirts at the same time with the collar popped oh, and yeah. distressed jeans and flip-flops. Mm-hmm. And so if anyone asks why I don't have any pictures of me when I was younger, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> you can but that's imagine. Why. I think at one point when I was like, con- when I was trying to, you know, I, uh, trying to be more black, um, I even wore a do-rag with my Abercrombie <laughs> polos. <laughs> so if you, wanna, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to see a confused black homosexual, there you go. I that was me. I like that look. So I don't know, and I, I, I think that my ideas of masculinity were really tied to my immediate surroundings, which were like, I, I, I took great pride in the fact that at 16 I took weight training, and I had weight training first period with all the football players, and I could squat as much as the football players at school. Is that, that all you were doing, sense. the football players, though? I mean, could you, were yeah. you just competing? I was just you competing. looking at them Oh, I've to- totally looking. Okay, well, yeah. like, you know. Because also Blake Miller, the quarterback, is the reason I came out in school, right? Go. I was There's at the cheerleaders, and I Miller. was like... He is hot. And so that was kind of like, that's how I came out. Um, and so, but I felt, I felt like I had something to prove all the time, right? And I don't think I made any connection between gayness and masculinity per se, like not an explicit connection when I was growing up. And it certainly had nothing to do with race at that stage right. because I was kind of completely race. Deracinated. Yeah, I was like, what? Yeah, I'm, I'm not black. Um, and I like Blake. Yeah. Because I can guess who Blake was. He was the white quarterback. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. Right. I think I have a, I have a more, um, I could speak more about masculinity as I understand it too. As I understand it now, but right. then it's very hard. To, it's very hard to look back and understand myself outside of just trying to fit in with whatever the, what whoever the most masculine guys in school were. Right, they sounded sporty. F- football players. They didn't sound geeky. They sounded sporty, right? Yeah, no, I completely like pushed intelligence. I was like, don't want to be the smart guy. Right. Okay, yeah. which is interesting, and you are the smart smart guy I am. actually. Yeah. So you're you're repressing something about yourself. Hugely, yeah. and that was linked to the uppity nigga stuff, right? right? And I didn't want the black kids to call me that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't want to be the uppity nigga, mm-hmm. right? And so I kind of I really rejected the intelligence, mm-hmm. and it's taken me a long time to to get back into it. But now I'm in it, and it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm are. a I'm an intellectual negro. Yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> but w- not one of the talented tenth. Yeah, I, I was about no. I was about no, no, no. to, um, and the talented tenth was referred to by W. E. Du Bois, who was um, good in some ways but problematic in others. Yeah, he was like the first black man to have graduated from Harvard or yeah. something. But yeah. the talented tenth, W. E. B. Du Bois thought that there was going to be ten percent of yeah. the black population who were going to be responsible for our racial 
uplift. uplift. If we could just separate ourselves, this 10%, and be better than all the other ones, we'll get through. And they were so, usually light-skinned Negroes. And they were probably all light-skinned. Yeah, he was. Part of the, yeah. you know what I mean, the salons of the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. And it's just like, it's not right. It's not cool. And mm-hmm. so I'm always kind of very, I'm an intellectual Negro, but not one of the 10% Negroes. Yeah. yeah. So in all that repression, but kind of uh, trying to uh, find your sense of self, I'm guessing you learned some toxic messages along the way, mm-hmm. which... Um, came to the fourth when people um as as is as is common now be careful what you put out there in social media because somebody will find it and somebody will and not just because someone will find it but because yeah (laughs) somebody will look for it if they um you know if they if they want to and um it, it it's a common thing for us all. Like, I, I can't remember what I've said, mm. like, you know, when Twitter started, I, you know, or, or anything, or we all evolve. Mm. So <clears throat> when the information came out about your tweets, um, and, and a lot of them were quite misogynistic mm-hmm. um, and shocking, mm. um, how... How did you look at yourself then? Because it, it was in the pre- it was something in the past mm-hmm. when you had grown in the present. But obviously, people who don't know you would have thought that's the same person. Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, I want to ask you about that evolution from that misogynistic um, gay man to the black radical queer. Yeah, because yeah. you know we're not. Um, we're not ever thought to evolve. We're often thought to stick in one one lane. Or that evolution is for show, right? Evolution that it's not a, it's not a genuine yeah. um, growth that no. we go through. And I don't know. I don't know if that is a if that's a limitation that's placed only on Black people, right? That or marginalized people. Or marginalized people that our growth is for show versus kind of like an an actual evolution and growth. I don't know. But I think when. Um, Patrick Strudwick at BuzzFeed called me with those tweets. I didn't recognize the person who, who had written them. And that was shocking for me to have that man repeat back to me because I said to him, who is that? Who's that? But it didn't make sense to me that that at some point was me. And what was very clear to me immediately as I was hearing those was that, that whoever that is is in a lot of pain, right? He's angry. He's lashing out of the world around him. And I recognized that. Right. I, rec- I didn't recognize the things, but I recognized the emotion. And I think if I look back at that particular time, I was trying to find my way in the world. I also didn't know who I was. I had no idea what I wanted. I was doing so many drugs. I was drinking so much. I was lost. I, I was surrounded by people who didn't really want anything more for our lives than just to do long coke benders on the weekend. Right? There was no substance to my life. I wasn't reading. I wasn't writing. I wasn't pursuing anything of of any substance. And so I think that was, um, in some ways, uh, me lashing out the world around me. Mm. But everything really came comes down to the summer of 2015. That was when the, the change... And that's, like, a <laughs> crucial point. And I just kind of want to explore the, the man, and I'm assuming you're surrounded by white people, <laughs> white men, mm-hmm. who... True. Um, were doing these drugs, and as we know in LGBT world, 
as opposed to straight world, the use of drugs, the use of um, self-medication is much more prominent for obvious reasons. Mm. I mean, we live in a transphobic, homophobic uh, world. Um, but I just want to kind of dig a little bit deeper about you being surrounded by people but also inside you were those people as well. Yes. Um, and um, and also like kind of colonization of mind, body, and soul. Totally. Like the body snatchers have stolen the tweets you. Is that they're not things that we haven't heard today, like mm-hmm. in the last week. Mm-hmm. This is not an expression of anger that we're not used to, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so I think that that, it's, that it, I'm not a singular entity of someone who's kind of transgressed against people I love and, and against the wider community. We're seeing this manifestation of anger all day, every day, um, as it was. And I think, you know, I think in some ways that at the time I was trying to be funny and sardonic and witty, and I was trying to replicate what I had seen as being a successful manifestation of a gay man. And I mean, clearly that's not healthy. It's not right. You don't punch down. Like, it just doesn't make any sense for me now. Um, But at the time, I think it made sense. Yeah. But don't you think it makes sense only in terms of... um, It's almost like you wanted to fit into a club. (laughs) And in order to fit into a club, you had to do this initiation. Because it's not... This is language, if you are in a queer world, an LGBT world, you are used to hearing gay men ref- speak about women like this. Yes. And, um, and it goes unremarked and... Um, unchecked. Unchecked and unchallenged. And to use words um, that are so misogynistic, but because... Um, gay men are often revered in culture queer for the straight guy well because feminism is it's it's feminism uh, sorry um femininity is the thing that's challenged in gay men right i think it's the thing that we're most sensitive about it's the thing that we've had to you know this criticism that we are so afraid of yeah so afraid but if we go back to the locker room or to any social sexual situation this idea that we might be too fem too effeminate or not masculine enough I think this misogyny that we have as gay men and that I'm still trying to dismantle in my own head is is so well ingrained because we've had to say no I'm a man in the world I'm a man I'm a man and you just kind of shoot out at people I might um, suck trying cock, to prove. but I'm a man because it's, it, it's about I also think sucking cock is very masculine but <laughs> I don't know have you, you tried you taking had... a dick I think that's quite masculine I think that, that there is that you know and, but again, and see, I'm doing frank. it now. I'm like, I'm putting dick in yeah. my mouth. I'm a man. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I can take a dick. Yeah. It's like, yeah, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> it's like, what? It, but I think that's the crux. You know, um, being penetrated is seen as feminine. In, in our culture, women are penetrated. The penetrator, like even when well, we talk about... Well, and to be penetrated electric, is, is necessarily seen as a, as a form as of a, subjugation. As a form of yeah. subjugation. It's like, suck my dick. That's a form of subjugation. Nobody mm. ever says, suck my cunt as a form... Do, yeah. do you see what I'm saying? Although our it makes language, sense how you say it. Yeah, yeah, but our language is inherently about the one who's penetrated is the lesser one. And the one who's doing the penetration is the superior one. So that places gay men in a very, um, what's the word, Um, doubtful situation in relation to masculinity. And so there's always this tension about, oh my God, I'm not a woman. 
I'm yeah. not a woman. Yeah. So I'm going to shit on women yes. in order to show I'm not a woman. Hugely. <laughs> and that yeah. lets you into the club. And that's not funny, but it's, it's... We don't have these types of conversations as gay men, right? Like... We may be having them more now, mm-hmm. but if I think about my they had them my in the sixties and seventies. I think they just don't permeate. Well, you know who who is and at, for for gay men here or by or men who have sex with men, mm-hmm. you know, think about who your tutors, mentors, role models were when you were coming of age. And like one of my huge resentments is that you know I came skipping out of the house at 18 and I was like I'm ready you know and I was not ready at all <laughs> I was not prepared for the world yeah. I was not prepared for predatory older men I was not prepared for the gay scene I was not prepared for the negativity I had no idea what to expect and so we have this very kind of roundabout and irresponsible way of dealing with our our youth right they they go out into the world knowing not what to expect, you know, and that's one of my big resentments, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to um, make better for someone else coming up now, is that you should be able to point at me and go, hey, that's a good example, or hey, busy being black is a, I'm going I'm to look at that, I'm going to listen to that, this is going to help me be, or know who I need to be, or at least point me in the right direction. I didn't have any of that growing up. And it wasn't until I was consciously aware that my life was going in a direction I did not want it to go that I was like, ah, why can't I get out of bed today? Ah, I'm depressed. Why do I want to die? I'm depressed. I hate my life. It wasn't until I was at that point that I was like, I need to do something about it and started, and started searching. And so I think this is a, it's, a, it's a beautiful point to make. And it's a conversation that we have to be able to have as men, as trans men, as queer men, as a community, to say, you're going to learn some fucked up shit along the way. Yeah. You're going to need to disregard the majority of it. Yeah. <laughs> All of it. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and part of that is also looking at um, but internalized we also take responsibility homophobia as well. For our lives. We also take responsibility yeah. for our lives. And so I don't think it's just that, you know, because my journey towards self-actualization, which sounds a bit woo-woo, but it started long before the tweets came out, right? Long before BuzzFeed published a story. The journey started way before then. It's how I was able to change my entire life to be in service of queer people because I thought, aha, my purpose is down this road. And once I started to do that, I started to feel so immensely better about myself. So there is a sense of responsibility that I think is distinct from pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like Those are two different things. There's a sense of responsibility, but there's also... There's also a sense I felt, even now, of longing, right? I need to pull around me people who want me to be the best version of myself, who want to share with me their mistakes, who want to share with me their learnings, and who want, or who are happy to use their lives as a template, right? Who are going to say, here's what I fucked up. I know you're going to make your own mistakes, (laughs) but like, here's what I might avoid. Uh, uh, Absolutely. And this is where we come to kind of black radical queer politics, because um, it's quite interesting. Um, I had a conversation with uh, Lady Phil Mm. about you and about um, the creation of a healing space. Mm. And um, Lady Phil is of Ghanaian descent. And after it all blew up... um, Lady Phil embraced you mm. and, 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 and took you um, under her wing. And we were having a conversation about that. And she said to me, in, in my culture, we don't throw people away. Mm. We bring them in. Mm. 
So instead of calling out, we call in. Mm. And I thought, oh my God, we've forgotten so much in, in when we were robbed. We have forgotten so much about who we are spiritually as black people. And she always um, brings a, a specifically black queer radical politics. Totally. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about that process of calling in and creating a healing space because we live in a culture which is about call out and shaming and you know discarding people and and actually the very the very people who've already been discarded we doubly discard them again mm. so they're kind of left like a shell on the ground whereas you know uh, we feel triumphant that we've called out because that makes us a better person not actually I think self-examining our own toxicity and ways in which we've failed other people it's very easy to point out where somebody else has failed and not look at our own journeys ourselves and there was a it's, resistance to when Phil called me in as well I remember okay. there was a because I fucked up yeah. Right. And but everybody fucks. Everybody up. does. We're 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 fallible. Totally. And we're human. I think I felt like I deserved what happened to me on, on some level. Right. And I think that, you know, in the aftermath, and I think it was. I think aftermath is the right word. Mm -hmm. I think I very much internalized something that said, "This is your fault." you deserve this, you don't deserve redemption, you don't deserve, you don't deserve, you don't deserve. Which is part and of your narrative from before. <laughs> hugely. Which is a, a punitive one. Punitive. Yeah. And Lady Phil was so counter to that, yeah. right? She was like, you have to stop saying this about yourself. You have to stop doing this. This is love, this is love, this is love, and this is an unconditional love. And I don't think that I was really used to that, mm -hmm. really. And so, yeah, so, so what she did for me in that moment, I've, I've told her I'll be grateful forever. But it's also like what my best friend Adrian did, right? He like moved into the house. Mm. Well, <laughs> speak like, about that. I'm going to move in yeah. and sleep on your couch and you're going to be okay. And, and this is something that's not spoken about. Uh, I, I think less so amongst um, uh, uh, queer people now. I can remember when I... I, I I broke up with a lover and um, Peggy Shaw, who's part of Split Bridges. I don't know if anybody um, has heard of Split Bridges. Check them out. Um, she said to me, um, do you want um, to come and spend the night with me and I will hold you mm. in the night? <laughs> and we, f we forget about the ways that in our intimate space, how loving we can be mm. um, how generous we can be when because in the public sphere there's a lot of visible um name calling up up man woman their man whatever ship mm -hmm. um whereas in intimate spaces can be quite loving mm. and i want to hear a little bit more about that in terms of your healing and how you've personally in your personal space have created a much more healing environment. So people know there is a journey from 
the drug few not that there's anything wrong in taking drugs we're not we're not yeah. with the don't say no we're not espousing so sobriety no we're not <laughs> to <laughs> each <know>. their own <laughs> I just want to say that yeah um, and you can have sex too yes. and drugs yes. <laughs> so it's not about it's not about that it's about kind of a a damaging punitive self-harming practice to self-healing and look and if future. i'm if i'm if real talk i'm not sure i'm done in the punitive sense with myself right. right it's what i'm it's what i feel sometimes very comfortable in right i've 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 always mm. which is not to make excuses for it but i think i've always punished myself far beyond what i probably deserve um and that's something i'm working on but i think part of creating a healthy healing space is surrounding ourselves with people like natalie who will call out your stockholm syndrome when she sees it and you know eight people like adrian who will move in with you and liam who will stand up for you and dave who will you know go above and beyond to support you in your new podcast adventure and lady phil who will call you in and will hold you and you know the uk black pride family right all these people kind of rallied around and i think one of the interesting things, and I, I've seen, you know, my relationship <laughs> to social media has obviously changed a great deal in the past two years. And now I'm doing a lot more listening and watching, yeah. particularly on Twitter. And I notice that so many people amplify the negative, yeah. right? So you'll have um, a very prominent activist or actor not calling out the people who've given them love and who've sent the messages of support, but rather those who are criticizing them. Yeah. Right? We spend so much time kind of amplifying and responding to the negative that we don't take time to acknowledge the people who have, who have come to our aid or who have, who have held us in the night. And so I think part of our journey as, as a community is to say, uh, how, do we, how do we shout out that more? How do we show that that's here? That loving on each other is part of this community, or it ought to be a more, a more properly considered and expected part of what it means to be part of this community. How do you think that's possible, considering that um, many of us are suffering um, from PTSD? Mm. Um, we've been traumatized and continue to be traumatized as queer children growing up, as queer adults, as black people mm -hmm. with post-traumatic slavery syndrome, you know, black people, I, I mean, of African descent in the diaspora. Have you got any ideas of how we can constructively create a politic that moves beyond blame, moves beyond um, a punitive way of looking at each other as black people? I think we share our healing. Black queer people. Mm -hmm. I think that we share it. I got a message. Um, I get lots of beautiful messages um, about busy being black. Um, I'm trying to get emotional. Um, and this young man messaged to say, you make me feel proud to be black and gay. And, yeah. And it's to, the, I don't know. I think we share the healing. I think we share what we're learning. I think that we share that we're hurting. I think that we, we have to share more. Yeah. Because otherwise, I don't think people know how to be there. You know, in my situation, it was just very obvious, right? I had just gone through a very public shaming. And so people were like, I think this guy might need some help. Um, how do we reach out? How do we reach out to him? Um, but I don't think it's that obvious for everybody, right? That 
that we are going through something and that we need support. And so it's calling in on each other. It's, it's sharing the healing. It's sharing the learning. And I mean, I'm just, I'm lucky that I had people around me, but also, so I did the Radio 4 interview. I think this is the day after with Eddie Mayer. And <laughs> I didn't appreciate this at the time, but my mom was like, you were on Eddie Mayer for 30 minutes. The prime minister doesn't even 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I was like, it's kind of cool. Um, but it wasn't cool at the time. No. Um, but your mom's cool for pointing that out. <laughs> um, anyway, so I, when I got back from the interview, um, I got in the door and the interview was on. And I heard myself and how hollow I sounded. Mm-hmm. And I started crying. And I was alone in the house. And I said, this has to be for something. This has to be for something. It doesn't make any sense unless it's for something. And I think it was in that moment that I was like, turn this into a, an opportunity to heal. Mm-hmm. Turn this in an, into an opportunity to connect. And so that's what I think that we need to do more of. But your films help, right? Like. <laughs> you creating the content that is a mirror of the lives that we are actually living is helping, it's healing. Anytime any of us step outside to create something that the the white world, capital W, capital W, doesn't deem worthy or worth funding or worth paying attention to, someone is going someone who needs that is going to encounter it. And I think that's how we do it. And I think hopefully that it we pass it on, we pay it forward. I'm, I'm, thank you. I'm going to ask you one uh, final question, which is about hashtag black love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Child. Hard pass. No, go on. <laughs> yes, my dear. <laughs> anyway, um, because that's become a prevalent topic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's even, a, there's even a documentary series by OWN Oprah Winfrey's channel called Black Love. And people are beginning to write articles about the the predominance of um, interracial relationships, interracial queer relationships as the ideal Mm -hmm. and um, the absence of black on black love. And um, I wanted to just explore a little bit of that because... um, how far does loving oneself go when you choose uh, an intimate situation with, we're not just saying monogamy, by the way, there is um, (laughs) polyamory (laughs) and non-monogamy as well. Um, But how how does that really work, you know, um, in your mind? Because we're, we're the product of interracial whatever fusions mm. and h- is there a purity can there be like how how does yeah. it work how does it work i don't know i think that uh so s- as a a person whose mom is white and dad is black i particularly white british and african american i have lots of contentious feelings about this mixed race identity and what it does or does not mean um as far as black love is concerned i don't think it's only sexual I think it's a, a large part of it is sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this idea of black love is linked to what we think is beautiful, mm-hmm. right? What we think is sacred, um, what we spend time cultivating and nurturing within ourselves and with other people. And so there are, I know a lot of people who are in interracial relationships and who um, are very pro-black. Um, I know people who are also in interracial relationships and who are not. 
Um, and so I don't feel well versed enough to speak on that. But I do know that I'm I have refocused my efforts on cultivating and being intimate with black men. And why is that? Is that Marlon Riggs? Black men yeah. loving black men. Yeah, is it's a Marlon Riggs, Essex Hemphill. And I was going to say Audre Lorde, but she was in an interracial marriage. Until the end. Until the end. On, when, when she was with um, a black woman <clears throat> mm. in the last, I think, eight years of her life. So. And I, I, and it's, I, think, I think there is a kind of, I think there's, there's an important pilgrimage mm-hmm. uh, uh, almost that, that we go on as black men, particularly, and, and black women and, yeah. and black trans people, mm-hmm. um, black people in general, that is about this kind of cultivating of, of love w- within each other and within ourselves. I want to push that a bit further because um, having conversations with other black people around black intimacy and two people's Two peoples, is that a word? Mm-hmm. Two people coming together who have a shared history, but also a shared history of trauma. And how that can be re-traumatizing sometimes, but at the same time... But also I think it's reductive. Affirm, so, well, let's go there. Let's, let's talk that through. Mm. Um, and, you know, for people who... Because, as you say, everything's a journey, mm. and a pil- I love the word pilgrimage. So we're doing well, something pilgrimage sacred. Is spiritual. It's spiritual yeah, and sacred. sacred. Yeah. And seeing blackness as sacred and spiritual, how two bodies coming together. How can we talk about that in a spiritual and sacred way? So I've got a friend in particular who is kind of on a parallel journey in blackness, <laughs> right, <laughs> if that okay. makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the way that we're showing up for each other has been really transformative, right? There are moments when he calls me and he's talking about a, a racist incident that he experienced and he needs he feels I'm the only person he can speak to about it. But then there's way that there's a way that I'm asking for things from him that have nothing to do with race, but are asking him to show up for me in a way that I need at the moment and vice versa. And there's kind of like almost um, a symbiotic tutelage going on, right? Here's what I need here's how we can be better men for each other. And that is ostensibly platonic. Right. And so I think there's a cultivation there of black intimacy. That is, how can I help you be a better man in the world? What are you reading? What are you learning? How, what do you need from me? How can I show up for you? Et cetera, et cetera. That I think can only be um, improved upon, amplified, um, made sweeter by black sexual intimacy. That's all I was going to say about sharing body fluids. Though. Yeah. Let's get down to it. Because well, I, I feel thing, like this is a different conversation. Not a, yeah. it's not a re- <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, as we know, platonic friendships are not the same risk as once you start being sexual with somebody. And That's that true. creates triggers, you know, that um, you don't necessarily have with friends. And how yes. do we manage those? Mm. Um, it, I mean, it's a challenge in my life, how to manage triggers in, and, and I'm sure in, in, all of your lives, how to manage triggers when you're intimate with somebody, sexually and romantically. Of course, with friendship it happens, but the risk is a bit greater. Yeah, and also I've I've been very open with the fact that I sometimes feel like I have massa complex. Massa? Massa complex. What does that mean? That I need to be the favored one. Right. That I need to be revered, adored by white men. Right. And so, yeah, I'm... I don't want my intimacy with black men to be predicated upon me trying to break free from something, yeah. right? It, 
black love is not oppositional no, it should not, not need to exist because i'm trying to get myself to a different place mm. it should exist solely because it is black love right mm. it's the right thing to do it's it's the nurturing thing to do so mm. that this is the area that i'm that i'm in at the moment but that is and it's obviously complex it is mm. and thank you so much for sharing and being so wonderfully vulnerable and beautiful and um i hope you know, by us talking through these things and, and being quite open and honest in a way, it, it might spark off something mm. um, that is healing and holding um, um, with particular black people. And, and I say that not in an excluding way, but I know that as people who've, who've been robbed and people who um, were left, <laughs> um, how um, we can create uh, a constructive and um, a kind of healing dialogue that builds us up mm. rather than, um, you know, um, pushing us down or pushing us back. We have work to do. Can I share something? Absolutely, please do. So the ancestors were speaking to me this morning and they said, grab that book. So this is um, Octavia's Brood, um, which is a collection of um, writers inspired by Octavia Butler. Um, and science fiction as social um, social action. And I was like, why? And just, just grab the book. So I grabbed the book. And I was on the tube. Ancestors and I, always <coughs> speak the they truth. Always know, just they grab the fucking know. book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did they swear? <laughs> no, um, so this is Birth of a Revolution. So this is the introduction by um, Sheree Renee Thomas. In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. cautioned us about adding, quote, deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. He wrote that darkness cannot drive out darkness, that hate cannot drive out hate, and he reminded us that only love can do that. Thirty years later, Octavia E. Butler wrote in her novel, Parable of the Sower, that our, quote, destiny is to take root among the stars. The activist and the artist seem at first to have been engaged in markedly different life work, yet they embraced a shared dream for the future. Their work is linked by faith and a fusion of spiritual teachings and social consciousness, a futuristic social gospel. In its essence, social justice work, which King embodied and Butler expressed so skillfully, is about love, a love that has the best hopes and wishes for humanity at heart. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you very much, Josh. Thank you. Shall we do a little hug? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe.
festivities begin with a third off our wonderful range of artificial trees and Christmas lights. Home base feels good to be home. Terms at homebase.co.uk.